So there's three questions that I think the old, I mean, the New Testament is trying to answer. It's not the only three questions that it's trying to answer, and it's not the only things that it's focused on, but the three questions that I see the New Testament really focusing on is this. What just happened? Jesus has died, and he was raised. What just happened? The second question is, what does this mean? Okay, so somebody has died has been raised. What does that really mean? The final question I think that the uh, New Testament can reveal to us is, what do I do now? What do I do now? I misspelled now. Par for the course. Sorry about that. (laughs) So, I'm going to start with what just happened. April 27th, 2011. I was one month and one day away from getting married. April 27, 2011, I was one month exactly away from stopping my job as a high school teacher. April 27th, Carlin was just two weeks away from graduating with her master's from the university. (laughs) That morning, we knew going to bed that night that some weather events were going to happen. That morning, about 5.30 in the morning, fierce winds blew through town knocking down trees, uh, pulling over power lines, and as a result, school was shut down. As a teacher, when school is closed, you don't have homework waiting on you, so it was just a free day for me. I remember renting the movie The King's Speech, zero out of ten recommend, and going over to Carlin's and spending the day with her. It was a day off, a day to just enjoy, a free day. We were hanging out, enjoying a day, and then these storms started moving through eastern Mississippi and into west Alabama. We began to pay attention and to see as it got about 50, 60 miles away from town, and it looked like it was on a trajectory straight for Tuscaloosa, where we lived. I remember it's this image that's going to come on the screen that made us get into our hiding place. That is a E, I think, five or four tornado heading through downtown Tuscaloosa. That will scare you. I remember we got into our hiding place in the laundry room of her house, and we heard the winds rattling the walls and the windows, trees shaking, and the wind just whirling through. And then it stopped. We walked outside, and it was leaves down and branches down, but this is what traveled through the city of Tuscaloosa. That night, while where Carlin was was all fine, but that night we had some friends that say, hey, our friends live in that path. Power's out. You don't know what it really looks like. You just know something was bad. So we got in our car, and we drove down to see this. I remember walking, and the next picture will be a great illustration. Dusk began to set in. The only light that was really around was the flashing lights of emergency vehicles. And the only sound you heard was crying and sirens in the distance. And I remember over and over and over again that question, what just happened. 
We, we walked through and just saw the destruction. The house I lived in was about a quarter mile south of that. I thought for sure it's gone. Luckily, it had just missed the storm. It was too targeted, and it, that wasn't in the target. But this is what we stood looking at going, what just happened? I think that's the last of the pictures. But I want to return to that question. What just happened? I think it's the question that the disciples are asking as they sit in the upper room that Friday and Saturday and even Sunday morning as they are just sitting there going, this man I have spent the last three years of my life following, surrendering to, obeying this one that I thought was going to bring complete change to the world, and now he is dead. I watched his final breath. What just happened? And then, I think that question was asked again, in a more deeper and personal way, when through a locked door Jesus invades the upper room, he says, the one that has scars from where he was just hung and beaten, he says, look here, I am here. Do not be afraid. And now they're asking even more so, what just happened? I think Peter, freshly filled by the Holy Spirit, tries to answer that in Acts chapter 2, if you will. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Hear what Peter says in the first sermon given to the people. He says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, and you yourselves know it. This one that God sent that has done so many supernatural and only divine things, he was sent by God. It says this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Told you it's been one story since the very beginning, guys. This was the plan, the definite plan, according to the foreknowledge of God. <clears throat> what does it say about them? You had the Christ and you crucified him. You had the sent one of God and you killed him in the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Do you hear this language of Peter? The one that was sent by God, the promised one, and he will connect to Joel and he will connect to the Psalms in Acts 2. The promised one, you killed him. You crucified him. You chose a true criminal instead of the sinless one to die that day. But death could not have victory over him. He'll continue, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. This is a factual piece of information. This isn't debatable discussions. We are witnesses of him. And then jumping down to 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. It's the same words John used last week. That Jesus, that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. 
this man you call a criminal, this man you chose to be crucified, he is the Christ, he is the Lord, he is the Son of God. And your attempts to quiet him and to silence him, your attempts to end him were futile. In fact, God foreknew and this was his plan. Jesus was the perfect Passover lamb. That's what just happened. For more, go to Sydney's uh, Bible says what video. Jesus is the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. Let's read that for just a quick second. He was pierced for our transgressions. These words were written 700 years before Jesus took a breath on this earth. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet as he opened not his mouth. This is who Jesus is. This is what just happened. God is fulfilling the promises that he made 700, 1,000, 1,500 years ago. The answer to what the prophets declared the salvation to the world, the hope to the lost, the light in the darkness, the releaser of the captive, the giver of life, the one who is the resurrection and the life. This is what just happened. God's plan reached its climax in Genesis 3. I mean, not in Genesis 3, right here on that day when Jesus rose. What was promised in Genesis 3, yes, Satan will strike the heel, but we will crush his head. What was uh, told of Abraham and Moses and David. Jesus is the true prophet, the true king, the true priest. And he is alive. He is risen. He has ascended to heaven and he will return. Through him, sin and death and Satan have been defeated. God's victory in human form lives among us and we are witness. That is what just happened. So I'm going to invite the band to come up. And they're going to lead us in a song, and we're going to take a breath in each one of these. What does this mean? I remember on April 27th was a Wednesday. After seeing the destruction firsthand that evening, I knew school was not going to happen that next two days. So we began asking the question, what does this mean? There were rumors circulating around town that bodies had been thrown because of the strong winds. They had been thrown on top of buildings. What does this mean? What did this mean for the rest of school? What does this mean for work? What does this mean for even driving around town? What does this mean when our power is out? What does this mean for our hospitals who are now affected and overwhelmed? What does this mean for rebuilding a town that is in complete destruction? Across the city, most of the power was out for multiple days. It brought back old times of fireside chats as we would get together with people and we would sit and either listen to the radio or we would go to somebody's house that had power. And we would sit all huddled up in a living room watching as our mayor gave a state of the city address every night. He would update the death count. 
He would discuss the steps the city was taking to uh, return back online. He would call for people to pray for the city. And he would ask anybody that could help in any way to help. Soon the university would cancel the semester, send all of their students home and just get out of here. No finals to be taken or anything. Shelters and food drives and shower stations would pop up all over town because so many people were displaced. In a sense, it felt post-apocalyptic as you walked and just saw complete destruction. And in other ways, it was really cozy and warm and relational. Because board games came out of the closet and were played over candlelight. Wiffle balls were thrown in backyards. Grills were heated up and were cooking anybody that was around that needed help. What does this mean? I think that's an answer, I mean, that's a question James and Peter and Paul, the mysterious writer of Hebrews, are trying to answer throughout the New Testament. What does this mean? What are the ramifications of living in a post-resurrection world? What are the ramifications of we now know the Messiah? How are we supposed to live when the once and for all sacrifice has already been paid? What does this mean for our worship, for our theology? What does this mean? Paul spends the book of Romans trying to give a treatise to this, right? Chapters 1 through 3, he says, all you screwed up. You did it wrong. You have chosen sin over and over and over again. Nobody is innocent. Chapter 4, he shows us it's all about faith, guys. Only by faith can we believe. Chapters 5 through 8, he says, now there is freedom. Freedom from the penalty of sin. Freedom from sin. Freedom from the law. Freedom from death. He'll show how salvation works in chapters 9 through 11, and then he'll show us how we are to live in response with authorities, with one another, with a church, in chapters 12 through 16. But perhaps the best passage is Ephesians chapter 2. In a lot of ways, Ephesians condenses Romans into uh, six chapters instead of 16. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. But God, what does this mean? But God. Rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That was such a good line, He's going to use it later. And He raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the unmeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ Here it comes again, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your doing, it's a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no man may boast. What does this mean? That God, rich in mercy, has shown his love to us through sending a son, that if we will put our faith in him, if we will trust in him, then we can be saved, we can know salvation. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. What? By the blood of Jesus. Only by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews will say there is no forgiveness except through the shedding of blood. And the perfect Passover lamb shed his blood. What does this mean? We that were far off have been brought near. We have been adopted. We have been reconciled. We have been uh, called sons who are really sinners. 
I sat this week with a student, and honestly, I could do this every day of every week because this student was struggling with doubts and fears and sin and guilt. That's all of us. Sometimes I just have students bold enough to share it. And I looked at this student and reminded them what we all need to be reminded. You cannot disqualify yourself from what you were never qualified for. You cannot disqualify yourself from what you were never qualified for. You can't lose what you didn't earn. What does this mean? Jesus bought what you cannot afford. This is what this means. And then there's one other thing that is so good for you and I, we just don't even realize it. Ephesians 3, 6, Paul says there's a mystery that happens upon Jesus' resurrection. That mystery means that all people can come. It says this, the mystery is this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus. Through Jesus, it is clear that Gentiles, anybody that's not a Jew, is a fellow member, a fellow heir, a fellow partaker. Eternity with God is not limited, nor has it ever been, but eternity with God is not limited to nationalistic identity or ethnic lineage. Salvation is available to all who believe, all who surrender, all who place their faith in Jesus and follow Him. In Acts 8, we see this taking place. The Ethiopian eunuch is saved and is baptized by Philip. In Acts 10, we see the Holy Spirit falling down on the household of Cornelius because they have put their faith in the work of Jesus Christ. What does this mean? God has always and now clearly states that all are welcome, just as foreigners like Ruth and Rahab were brought into not only Israel proper, but into the lineage of our Savior. All who surrender their lives and wed themselves with Christ will be saved. Galatians 3, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, people of God are united under one symbol that they have put their faith in the salvation and the work of Jesus Christ, and they have made him the Lord of their life. So what does this mean? That Jesus changes everything. The veil between God and his people is removed. The Spirit now dwells in all believers. Access and relationship with God is available. Worship can be done in true and pure hearts. The gospel is what comes out of what just happened. So band, you guys come on back up for us. The gospel message is trying to clarify what just happened. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him may not perish, but will have eternal life. And the gospel message is the message that we need to be taking to our campus, that we need to be taking to our families, to our friends. The gospel message is the message we need to be reminding ourselves of every day as well. So we're going to sing the song now, ask this final question. We ask it from a place of knowing that our debt is paid, it is paid in full by the precious blood that our Jesus spilled. And so, Lord, we now come to you fully surrendered, fully dependent, And we want to honor you. And so, Lord, 
as we open your word one last time. Teach us what we ought to do in response to what you have done. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Following the storm, many people sprung into action immediately. Our group hosted this uh, company or organization called Convoy of Hope where they would send us an 18-wheeler every single day packed with groceries and supplies and we created this makeshift drive through in our parking lot where people could get the needed things, water, food, toilet paper, to survive. I remember going to different uh, homes that were just destroyed and helping different people and just meeting people from states all over the United States that had flown, flown in just to help in the aftermath. But that question, what do we do now, kept resonating. I was 22 years old teaching 16, 17, and 18-year-olds in my class every single day. A hundred students each day I would show up to teach. I remember the first day back was complete shock. What do I even do? do? I mean, do they really need to know geometry when their house is in shambles? And so we started sharing about your experience. Not only did the tornado run through downtown Tuscaloosa, completely demolished a high-poverty area where most of my students lived. Many were displaced and living in hotels or with family members on couches and floors. And then we had a student, his name was Brandon. He was a football player, a senior. And he began to speak about what he experienced. He lived in the Rosedale Housing Authority where it really came rushing through. Brick houses lay completely flat. And Brandon began to talk about, in the aftermath of the storm, how it's quiet. And he began just to help. And then tears started swelling up in his eyes as he shared that as he was picking through walls that were down, he found lifeless bodies laying there. What do I do now? I'm 22 years old trying to counsel and lead an 18-year-old? What do we do in the aftermath of this situation? I had a 17-year-old girl who is pregnant and going, I, I don't know if I can eat tonight, and so we're trying to find supplies for her. I have a, a, a kid that has a, I mean, I have a student who has a kid, and so we're finding diapers and carrying it to their houses. What do we do now? So much of life is that question, what do we do now? What do we do when we get a flat tire on a busy street? What do we do when we get rejected from the school that we were planning to attend? What do we do when the person we thought we were going to marry now breaks it off? What do we do when a job we had aligned falls through? What do we do when COVID steals our grandparents? What do we do when life seems to rain hailstorm after hailstorm, tornado after tornado through our experience? What do we do? You've been there. Maybe it was in the aftermath of Harvey or the snowstorm. 
Maybe it was after a shocking call or a rejection email. The New Testament writers are asking that same question. What do we do now? What do we do now? Now that salvation has been paid for. They, they get it right for good things. Salvation has been paid for. Grace is ruling. What do we do now that sin has been defeated once and for all? What do we do now that the Spirit dwells within us? What do we do now? Because we're obviously supposed to be different. The old is supposed to pass away. The new has come. What do we do now in these new clothes, in this new life? A lot of instructions in the, old, in the New Testament is on how to live. Right? Here's some ethical ways to live. Here's how to worship. Here's how to treat one another. Here's how to build the church. And those are good and holy and righteous and pleasing things to do. But I fear for too long the church has sat in the behavior modification and the ethical statements of the New Testament, and we have forgotten and released our mission of what we're supposed to do. See, what are we supposed to do? The real answer isn't just be holy and show up to church. Make sure to wear pants, Peter. Sorry. But, but what do we do? And see, we have focused so much on these ethical statements. But when Jesus was leaving, he wasn't giving a bunch of instructions about, okay, now here's what you need to eat because you can have pork. He doesn't go, here's how the church I want it to form, and here's what I want the buildings to look like. He doesn't go, hey, here's how often I want you to take the Lord's Supper. No, what does Jesus say? Here's your mission. Matthew 28, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does he say in Acts 1.8? Go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and to all of Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There is no crack or crevice of this planet that does not represent it in Acts 1.8. What does he say? We, we are to go and to be his ambassador, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, Paul is writing, what do we do now? We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We are his instrument. We are the way that he is going to bring salvation to the world. What do we say? We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our message. He clarifies it even more, verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul will say in verse 14, this is a compulsion, I mean, a compulsion within us. We cannot help but speak about what we have seen or heard, as Acts 4.20 will say. It is easier for us as church people to sit and to dwell on our personal righteousness and completely negate our personal responsibility to go and to share to go and to tell, to explain, to exhort, to proclaim, to teach, to baptize. What do you do? As people changed by the grace of Jesus Christ, you unashamedly and unapologetically tell others what you have seen and heard. You boldly and courageously point others to Christ who changed your life and He wants to change theirs. Yes, our character matters. We need to live good lives. But we must not focus so much on our character and just think that that's going to be enough. We have overused St. Francis of Assisi, 
right? Yes, our actions speak, and, but, but we also have to use words, guys. We have to share what we know and not hide it. What do you do now? In light of salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in light of understanding that by God's rich mercy, all people can come to faith in Him, this is what you do. You live out your faith. You live questionable lives where people see and notice something different. You live bold lives because you know that what Christ did is more valuable than what anything this world can do. You live courageous lives, having hard conversations with parents, with roommates, with friends, because you care about their eternity so much you can't help but have it. You honor God with your life as a living sacrifice, Romans 12.1. Not abusing grace, Romans 6, by continuing to sin, but you flee it, 1 Peter 4. You fight temptation at every turn because Jesus is better, the Spirit is stronger, and holiness is more important. What just happened? Jesus died and was raised. 1 Corinthians 15. This is a fact. What does this mean? Ephesians 2. You have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. This is not of your work. You can't boast about it. Nor can you disqualify yourself from what you were never qualified for. What do you do now? Go and tell. Go and tell. Cooper, I got way too far in this. It's 1043, so can we just do the bridge of that? What do we do now? We shout it. We tell it from the mountains. Because Christ has changed our life and we can't help but tell others. So live bold, live courageous, live free, live questionable lives so that people will see your life and want to know what's different. So we're going to do this until it says 1046 and then you just say amen for us, all right? Now stand with us.